and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dyada, and this is a podcast for people who are new to the field or interested in working in public health. And today, we're very lucky, Associate Professor Leslie Russell from the Menzies Centre for Health Policy at the University of Sydney has come all the way out to Macquarie to sit and talk with me. Thank you so much for joining us, Leslie. I'm very happy to be here. So we were just talking and you've had quite a varied career. I was wondering if maybe we could start at the beginning. You started out in basic science. I did. My Bachelor of Science degree, which I took at the University of Tasmania, was in organic chemistry. And I, in fact, then did a research honours degree in organic chemistry. But I was already interested in the ability to do things like biochemistry, which was not then offered at the university. And that I did my PhD at John Curtin School of Medical Research at ANU in what was really the very early days of molecular biology. And what first drew you to science? What what made you interested? Oh, I grew up on a farm. I'd always been interested in science. I had, I grew up in a very small farming community, um, but was lucky to have a really good education and some really good teachers. And, and in my first year at high school, I knew everybody hated science and I couldn't figure out why, but I had a really amazing, enthusiastic, inspiring science teacher. And I wouldn't say that I found the science subjects and maths necessarily the easiest subjects. I had to try a little harder at those subjects, but I always did well. And even in those days, nobody ever said to me, oh, a girl can't do science. So I just automatically assumed that that's what I was going to do. That's great. And I love how you say it's something you had to work at, because I work in epidemiology and a lot of people are scared of stats. Um, But it can be a learned skill because it didn't come naturally to me. I love that. So you didn't stay necessarily working in in a lab-based environment. What happened after your PhD? There was some travel to the US involved? I went to the US to do my postdoc, which I did at the Department of Defence Medical School just outside Washington, D.C. Can I just interject, sorry, for a second? How did you get that? Did you approach them or how did Um, you find out about it? I wrote lots of letters (laughs) looking for jobs. I wanted to go to the US lots of letters looking for jobs and I got a number of job offers. Yeah, really proactive. Well it was kind of expected I think at least amongst the science community that I worked in that you would take your postdoc overseas. It was relatively unusual not to do that. Okay. And it was a pretty, I had already lived overseas, I had lived and worked at the University of London in London, I had lived for a little while in France and I had lived and worked at the University of Tel Aviv in Israel, so wasn't in a, packing up and moving countries was relatively easy, and that, and um, they more or less spoke the same language in the US. Although there were there are some very funny stories about mistakes that I made, assuming that everybody understood what I was talking about. But it was also a very easy transition. My Australian education stood me in very good stead and was very well respected. But that was in the early 1980s, it's just 38 years today since the very first CDC report on pneumocystis pneumoniae, which was the linked into HIV AIDS was published. So I was sort of there at the beginning of that. And the issues like what what are you going to do about tackling HIV AIDS, about the use of animals in research, there was a lot of discussion about genetically, deliberate release of genetically modified organisms. And you'd listen to this discussion on 
even the best of the television stations, public radio, public television network, and it was clear that there wasn't much science involved. And so I became aware that the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, which publishes Science Magazine, most people would know about that, offered and have done now for the better part of 40 or 50 years, fellowships for early to mid-level scientists to work in the US Congress. And so I applied for one of those. I wasn't a US citizen and had to work very hard to persuade them to interview me, but they did. And I won a fellowship to go to work in the US Congress for 12 months. I got bitten by what's called Potomac fever and I never went back to the lab bench again. And then what sort of work did you do? So you stayed in Congress after that yes. one year, so it was seven yes. years? Yes, when, when my year was up, they asked me to stay on, and I was there for almost eight years. I worked for the Democrats, for the chairman of the largest committee in the House of Representatives, um, the Energy and Commerce Committee, which despite its name had jurisdiction over pretty much everything to do with health. And what sort of work did that involve as a scientist in that role? Um, you didn't have to be a scientist, and there were very few scientists, uh, lots of lawyers, but very few scientists working as senior staff. But we were expected to know about all the issues, not just to know about the issues that were happening, but to be predictive about what issues were going to come down the road. To get the substance of those issues, my boss was himself, had himself been a scientist, and was very interested in the substance, as well as the politics and the policies around it. And sometimes we did what were called oversight and investigations hearings, where we investigated things and laid out the case for issues. That was what we did with HIV AIDS, for example, trying to explain that this was an infectious disease, it wasn't a lifestyle disease. That was quite a difficult argument to get across initially. And then laying out what someone with HIV/AIDS was going to need in those days, it was a, it was really a death sentence. Mm. Uh, it's only more recently that it's become to be viewed as a chronic disease. And then perhaps on the basis of that, it made it easier to proceed with legislation, which you were required to develop and usher through and make sure that all the voices were heard. There would be hearings around the legislation. And because I'm talking about the good old days when Republicans and Democrats worked together, mm -hmm. um, you would often have to uh, modify, if, in order to get enough votes for a piece of legislation to get out of committee onto the House floor, out of the House floor into the Senate, you would often have to modify those. Now, of course, in the end, the elected representatives had the final, my boss had the final say, but he expected me to give him the advice on which his say was predicated. So scientific training is very good for that sort of work because in science you kind of know where you start and then you are trained about how to think about well, what happens next and what does this mean and what else do I need, those sorts of things. So as I said, although very few scientists go into this sort of work and lots of lawyers do, I actually think a science training really equips you to think very well in the political slash policy arena. That's great. And so you've got a great skill base as a scientist. What were some of the things that you sort of had to work on or, the, or a bit of a, was there a steeper learning curve for some things? 
Well, let me ask, answer the question in a slightly okay. different way. Because sometimes being a scientist meant that it was really easy to understand the issues in ways that other people couldn't. So I could really understand what the problems were with pertussis vaccine, for example, because I knew how pertussis vaccine was made and how vaccines worked. And I knew what you could and couldn't do about pesticide residues on food because I knew how high-pressure liquid chromatography worked. But, you know, healthcare, doesn't matter what country you're in, is an extraordinarily complicated arena to work in and, and often there are no, there's no one right answer to anything and sometimes you have to make decisions about what to do when the evidence isn't really there or the mountain of evidence isn't there, even if there's an anthill of evidence. And sometimes there are just really silly, stupid ideas that come forward that you have to refute. So again, I think that's where your scientific training and looking at the evidence and assessing what's appropriate and what isn't helps. Yeah. And is there anything, sorry, I, I know I'm jumping around a bit, but is there anything in Australia that's similar for science? I know there's Science Meets Parliament. Have you heard of anything there, similar to there the There isn't. I have over the years worked with some of the science groups to see if it's possible, but it's just not that easy to do. It does take resources. The Australian Parliament is so much smaller. Mm. So, for example, the committee that I worked on, which was the largest committee the oldest largest committee in the House of Representatives had minority and majority staff, about 150 staff. Um, you know, a committee in the Australian Parliament has maybe five. Mm. So there are lots of people who are interested in the general idea and, and of course scientists going to the Parliament is a way of getting some sense of that, but there isn't really that opportunity in the same way. And so following that, you decided to come back to Australia, mm -hmm. is that right? Yes, um, the, and you, at the end of 91. Yeah. Back to and you were working for a pharmaceutical company, is that right? Initially, I, came, I, came, I was offered a job from the United States to set up the public affairs government relations for a major pharma, international pharmaceutical company. And I really enjoyed that. I particularly enjoyed one aspect of it, which was that I was able to set up a a research foundation and in particular that research foundation provided seed money to people who had a good scientific idea that had some evidence behind it but perhaps was not yet in the situation to get NH and MRC funding and even today I still run into people that we funded in those early years who say you know, that was how I got my start. Oh, that's, that's um, so rewarding. <laughs> yes, that was, that was really great. And I got to meet, obviously, because all of the grants applications that came in had to be peer-reviewed. I got to meet a lot of scientists of all sorts of types around Australia, and, and some of those people I'm still in touch with. I love meeting scientists. It's my favourite part of doing this right. podcast. And <laughs> I, I think I have to say that one of... One of the great things about my working life is that it's enabled me to have lots of networks of people on several different continents and email just simply makes it so much easier to stay in touch and I do work hard at keeping up those networks and more particularly now helping people. Um, someone might call me from the States and say I've got a young student who's coming to Australia, could you talk to them? Um, so those sorts of, it's not quite mentoring but 
looking after the next generations is also a lot of fun. That's great. Not everyone takes that extra step, so that's really wonderful. And those networks, have they been important in your career journey? You've had a lot of opportunities. You've moved around a lot. Has some of that come from networks or have you sought things out on purpose? Um, I've often sought things out and sometimes things have come to me. I've had a pretty weird career path. certainly hasn't been straight. It's always been interesting. It's sometimes been frustrating. Um, looking back, there are one or two things perhaps I would have done slightly differently. But I always say to people, you, you know, if something interesting comes along, don't run away from it. Even if it, you're not quite sure where it's going to lead you, explore it and, and then perhaps take it up because you don't want to go through life thinking, what if? Mm-hmm. And there's always something to be learned out of even the, the situations that don't work. Now, that's easy to say, I guess, if you don't have a mortgage and children's education expenses, although I've had at least a mortgage. But I think that life offers a lot of opportunities and you have to be willing to seize them. I am trying, like everyone in the podcast knows I get very nervous about things, so I do struggle sometimes to say yes to things that scare me, but I just do it anyway. So could you talk us through, you're in Australia, you came back to work for the pharmaceutical company, and then you kind of have had a very varied career from there out. Yes. Could you give us a short version of... (laughs) I got headhunted from the pharmaceutical company to go to work for the Sydney Olympic Games Committee. So I was the director of communications for the Sydney Olympic Games which surprised everyone. Um, What was this woman scientist, Doctor Who, one headline said, doing in a position at the Olympic Games? And again, that was really interesting. I had a lot of responsibilities around what we needed to do to work with Indigenous Australians. Part of my responsibility was developing the logo. That was also quite problematic because every Australian thought they knew what the Olympic logo should be. But it was also a bit, um, as someone who'd been an Olympics fan for a long time, somewhere or other at home I have the scrapbook I made for the 1956 Olympics when I was very, very young. It's kind of a shock to discover that the Olympics is not necessarily the nicest organisation to work for. Mm. Um, so I went from the Olympics, uh, I worked for Telstra in their Olympic work for, for a little while after I left SoCold. I worked for the Cancer Council And then in 2001, I went back into politics working for the Australian Labor Party. So I went to work for Simon Crean, who was then leader of the opposition for the Australian Labor Party, doing, well, primarily health policy, but I also did aged care, uh, Indigenous, uh, immigration, veterans' health and women's issues. I used to say I looked after all the things John Howard didn't care about. Mm And when Simon lost his job as leader of the opposition, as is wont to happen in Australian politics, um, Julia Gillard became shadow minister for health and uh, manager of opposition business, and I went to work for her as her senior policy advisor. And that's amazing. How did you get these roles? Were you headhunted? Did people know you because you work in the US? I had known Simon Crean through my work for Merck because he, he had done trade issues. And so I had, part of my job at Merck was government relations, so I'd been to the parliament a number of times and I met Simon and got to know him quite well on that basis. And 
at the time that he became leader, obviously there's a bit of a turmoil around staff and I wrote to his office and said I would be really interested in working for Simon, here are my qualifications and I was interviewed and I was one of, he had a set of six senior policy staffers in his office and I was one of those people. That's great. I love all your stories. You're so proactive in everything. It, it really shows that you, you've put yourself out there, you've put yourself forward. I think it's been a combination of both, but you know, I, I had made this decision that yes, I wanted to go back into politics. I was just after the so-called Tampa election, I was cross about the result and my politically savvy husband said if I didn't like the result I had to go it was my country and I had to work to make it better so that's what I did I love that I'm going to quote that and then when as I said when Simon lost his job Julia said I want Leslie to come and work for me and then what was that like working in oh fabulous absolutely (laughs) wonderful um she's a great person yeah and we've stayed in touch over all the years and so I did not just the we were very small office so I did not just the health stuff, and that meant I did all of the health stuff, but also I was the person who was responsible for getting together the question pack for question time, which always entailed some frantic typing as the bells rang for question time. So again, although you know, I suppose the thing that drives me the most around politics is policy development and then even better policy implementation, I'm also really interested in the political processes. My American boss had always taught me that if you don't master the political processes, it doesn't matter how good your policy is, you'll never get anything done. And so it can be extraordinarily frustrating and obviously the American system and the Australian system are very different. They work reasonably well, even though we do scream in frustration sometimes. But but I think it's really useful, even if you're on the outside, to understand what's going on with political processes so that if you want to make your case about something that's important to you as a, a public health person or a research scientist, knowing what the drivers are and what the limitations are and what the possibilities are in the political process, I think, is very useful inside knowledge. And that's great. That was going to be my next question. How can we better, as scientists, engage with, with politics? But when you say understanding the processes more, is that just a lot of reading around politics in Australia? Or how do we gain that knowledge if we're not actually oh. working in the machine? <laughs> it's, it's, well, that's a really good question because that's actually pretty hard to do. And I would argue that the best way to do it is, is hands-on. It's pretty dry, boring, old stuff to read in the there are books, the pro forma, here's what you're supposed to do. You yeah. know, here's how you treat financing bills versus non-financing bills, that sort of thing. I think uh, there are some blogs. The Australian Parliamentary Library has some really useful, interesting information on their website that is summaries of bills, what the bills mean. Um, they'll sometimes give you the history of um, a piece of legislation or work in a general area of legislation. That's much easier reading. And, you know, the opportunity to talk to people who've worked in inside the system is also really, just really helpful. So you just sort of have to 
absorb it by osmosis, I yeah. think. Okay. I have to be brave and go and talk to some people. <laughs> and so what's one of the things that you're most proud of, some policy that sort of has come through that you feel like you've had a lot of input into? Is there something that really stands out? We can have a few. Well, in Australia, I was involved in both of the bills. Um, they were done about two and a half years apart that related to the use of fetal tissue in research. And that was quite. they were quite controversial. And I don't know if you people will remember, but at the time this issue came up, it wasn't something that the coalition really wanted, who were in power, really wanted to do. But the scientific community had made a a pretty good case. And the Labor Party decided that it would give its members, because it was so controversial, at least for some people, um, the Labor Party decided that it would give its members a conscience vote. So they didn't have to vote the way the caucus determined. And because the Labor Party had done that, the Coalition Party also did. And very interesting, that meant that what drove all this was a coalition of women. So it was Kay Patterson, who was then the Minister for Health for the Coalition, Julia Gillard on opposition, I'm going to Lynn Allison, who was with the Democrats, and several other people were involved and it was my I was sort of the staff person that so it was great we could go off and have meetings in Kay Patterson's office and nobody batted an eyelid but it was my job to explain this really quite complicated language to people who were not scientists and I had to explain it equally fairly and equally well both to people who supported the idea of using fetal tissue in research and to people who were opposed to that idea. Eventually the legislation was enacted, which probably wouldn't have been if the votes had not been a conscience votes. And we included in that legislation a requirement that there would be a review because in a way you're making legislation for something that's changing an area of science that's changing so fast you can hardly imagine what it would look mm. like in two years, three years, certainly in five years. So we, we instituted a review and that review came back very positive that scientists were complying with the safeguards and made, recommended some changes and we did the same thing again. I did keep all the paperwork thinking I'd write a book about it one day but I recently came to the conclusion that wasn't going to happen through most of the paperwork out. But I, I put that up there with one of the best things I've ever done. And, and I have lots of war stories from the US Congress about some bills, uh, the, the very first HIV AIDS bill, the so-called Ryan White Act, a bill to regulate the way that medical devices, uh, well, to change the way in which medical devices are regulated, which took us four years to do. And I tell this story sometimes to encourage people. In the 80s, when I was working in the US Congress, we did a lot of work with a congressman from Oklahoma called Mike Sinar about getting the Food and Drug Administration to regulate tobacco rather than the Agriculture Department because we didn't see it as a crop, we saw it as a threat to public health. And that was really difficult because the US was still growing a lot of tobacco in those days and obviously the committee that had responsibility for USDA didn't want to give it up to 
go to our committee, which had responsibility for FDA. And the committee never stopped working on that issue. And one of the very first bills that, one of actually the first health bill that Barack Obama signed in 2010 was a bill to transfer responsibility for the regulation of tobacco to the FDA. That's amazing. So that persistence and it's a yes. marathon, not a sprint. If at first you don't succeed, try, try. Yeah, again. and it's interesting hearing about that in the political context because I hear about it in, you know, when I've spoken to other researchers, it seems persistence is a really key well, driver. And absolutely in public health where you're trying to, I mean, it's hard to look back now at how far we've come on tobacco, how far we still have to go, I mm. might say, even here in Australia. Uh, so I have a few more questions, but I am just conscious of time, so I'll just think of my favourite ones. I'm curious, with all the different career changes you've had, what's been your biggest motivator? What, what, what have you thought about when you've made these decisions? That they're quite bold changes a lot of the time. I think what supported me, aside from a great partner, has been the idea that if it didn't work out, something else would happen. I would survive. That's not necessarily a positive way of looking at things, but that was always sort of the safety net that under that always underpinned my international moves. If I don't like it, I'll, I can always go home, mm. which my immigrant grandparents certainly couldn't have said. And when I've made leaps of faith, I've always thought this is going to be interesting, this is going to be exciting, I'm going to learn something, and if it doesn't work out, there'll be something else to do. And thank goodness there always has been. That's awesome. I love your story. It's so inspirational. So um, just to sort of start wrapping up, any big lessons learned or things you'd sort of say to yourself earlier that you might like to do differently? Well, grab as much education as you can. I was lucky, I guess, that I grew up in the days when you didn't have to pay for your university education. And one of the things I really enjoyed was I also did, a, along with doing all the science stuff, I did an arts degree, which I has not served me in any great sense except that I now speak can speak Italian, but but was fun to do just for relaxation. And I've always been interested in the communication side of what I do, so I do quite a lot of writing, and I think it's a really interesting exercise to learn to make your case in the 700 words, 700 to 800 words that's the average opinion piece. Increasingly these days in my writing I try not just to be critical of policies and initiatives but to offer mechanisms and ways of doing it better. So I think you have to be positive about things if you're going to be critical. And you know, you can immerse yourself in work, but you have to have other things in life as well. Yeah, I love that. That's been a lesson for me over time. I'm getting the balance a bit, yeah. a bit better as I get older. And people can read more about your work or your thoughts. You write for Crokey, the health wrap at the I, moment? I write regularly for Crokey. Uh, every two weeks I do the health wrap, which is kind of an idiosyncratic look at the things that interested me over the last two weeks. It's really well written. <laughs> I write uh, generally about once a month for Inside Story magazine, online magazine, mostly on US political issues. Oh my God, I have so much 
bad stuff to write about with Trump. Mm -hmm. But I tend to put a bit of a health focus in there as well. So the most recent piece I wrote was about what Trump and the Republicans are trying to do with women's reproductive mm -hmm. rights. Those are the, and I occasionally write for John Menergy's Pearls and Irritations blog. I think that's the best name for a blog. So my most recent piece, which was published this week, is on what we might do to restrain what I think is the free market that specialist medical care, you know, all the issues that have been going on around costs and out-of-pocket costs. So yes, I have a lot. That uh, generally that requires research and a um, bit of effort, but it's also fun. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, people can hear more from you if they want to look up any of your writing. Sure. Um, and I'm on Twitter uh, at L Russell Walpy. Excellent. And we will tweet about this, this okay. podcast as well. Um, and just to finalise, my favourite question, do you have a favourite book or a podcast or movie, something that's changed the way you've thought about the world? I have lots of favourites and I'm not sure that anything's necessarily changed the way I think about the world. I like Hannah Kent's book. She wrote one about, uh, based on fact about Iceland and another more recent one about life in uh, rural Ireland. I particularly like Abraham Verghese who wrote Cutting for Stone and he wrote a very interesting book called The Tennis Player about oh, substance abuse and in the medical fraternity. I like, I think his name is Hussein Khalid, the guy who wrote A Thousand Rising Suns and The Kite Runner and, and there's one other one. Yeah, any of his are good. Yes. <laughs> I love to read. I always have several different things on the go. My favourite movie is probably probably Lawrence of Arabia, which I think I've seen seven times in the uncut version. I haven't seen that one. I'll have to put it on my right. list. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really think your journey is so inspirational and you've done some amazing work in, in your life, as you still are. Thank you very much for joining us. That's, it's been fun. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>